0: Have you ever been asked the million-dollar question? Now, I I assume that's a figure of speech, right? The million-dollar question. I remember growing up, my parents always called it the $64,000 question, but inflation. So... The million-dollar question simply refers to a question that's very important, that whatever comes out of your mouth after you're asked this question is going to be a weighty answer. All words are weighty in a sense. All words are important. But every now and then you get asked a question, and whatever comes out of your mouth next is, is something that, is, that you have pondered, you have thought of. It is not a flippant response, right? Can you imagine? Um, uh, members of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. Please stand and deliver your verdict. We find the defendant. Whatever you say, right? Lives are going to change. It's a big deal what comes out of your mouth. Imagine uh, you're across the table, and it's been a long time, this acquisition, and they're about to buy your company, and the lawyers have done all the due diligence, and everybody's... But at the end of the day, there's a moment. So, do we have a deal? Like, those words are super... Some of you remember the day... You remember the day you were all dressed up and a minister looked right at you and said, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? What you say next, those two little words, if the next words out of your mouth are I do, your world is going to forever change. And if the next words out of your mouth are anything other than I do, your world is going to end. Like, you (laughs) know, These are weighty words. Everybody, everybody understand what I'm saying, right? Sometimes you get asked these questions. My favorite is, do you know why I pulled you over? What do you say next, right? Really matters. You, you get my point, right? Does this dress make me look overweight? See, the, you better measure twice and cut once on that one. You understand? You get the point. These are loaded questions. Today's text is a kind of drum roll, please, million-dollar question. The whole gospel of Matthew has been building to this point. Jesus is going to lay on his disciples in Matthew 16. He is going to lay on his disciples the million-dollar question. This is what Matthew's been building to. This is what the ministry of Jesus and his disciples has been building to. Will you meet me in Matthew chapter 16? We're going to start in verse 13. Look at how he sets up this loaded question. The disciples are slowly piecing together who Jesus is, and look how he sets this up. This is brilliant. He, he comes at it qu- kind of from the side. He comes at it first indirectly. Now, the Bible says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, this is not the million-dollar question, this is the setup. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man goes all the way back to some prophecy from the book of Daniel. It has to do with the Messiah. It was Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. So he would always call himself the Son of Man. It's just simply a way of him saying, so, so who do people say that I am, guys? He's looking at his disciples. How are we doing in the polls? <laughs> What's the, what's the growing consensus? Who do other people? It's actually a brilliant way to get at it. He's not directly asking them yet. He's just saying, you know, how are we doing in the polls? What, what, what do people think? And they give the standard answers, verse 14. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. It's a pretty good list. Some say John the Baptist. We have a record of that. In uh, uh, Matthew 14, verse 2, it was Herod who said that this Jesus who's going around doing the miracles, it's got to be John the Baptist back from the dead. Herod had... Obviously, some guilty conscience going on that was dealing with that, but that's, that's why. This is, so you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others say Elijah. What's the deal with Elijah? There's all this messianic fervor around Elijah. You understand, when I say messianic, I'm a of, of relating to the Messiah, right? The, the anointed king who's going to come and put the world to rights. Well, the thing with Elijah, Elijah's an interesting prophet, because if you go back in the Old Testament, Elijah technically never died, Right? At the end of his life, he's standing there with his protege, Elisha, and suddenly this, this, this whirlwind comes, and there's chariots of fire, and Elijah, the prophet, is taken up in a whirlwind. So in, in the, in the uh, way of thinking back in the day, they're like, Elijah's still out there somewhere, and whenever Messiah comes, Elijah's going to show up first as the prophet to be like, ta-da, here's the Messiah, now, it's interesting because John the Baptist actually, in a way, fulfilled that role of the Elijah who was to come. But anyway, there's all this mystery around Elijah. So a lot of people are like, maybe he, maybe he's like Elijah, okay? And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Same thing. There was this legend that Jeremiah or Isaiah would come back before the Messiah would come. And so they, they give this, this list of answers. Pretty pretty good list. I mean, those are all uh, certainly uh, famous and, and great uh, faithful uh, people in uh, Jewish history. Um, but that that that's that's part of the problem. I mean, for one thing, I think makes me laugh. I think the disciples maybe are showing a little bit of discretion here because you notice they like, they, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, who do they leave out? Like they totally leave out like some of the very negative things people have already said about Jesus, like the Pharisees, right? I noticed, I don't know if they're just being nice. They didn't want to hurt Jesus' feelings, but they didn't want to say like, some people think you're Satan, right? Like the Pharisees literally think you are one of the demons, okay? But they leave all that stuff out. They just go with the, they go with the good stuff. Um, but the problem is, even with, quote unquote, the good stuff, that, that's the problem. As long as you see Jesus in a list, in a category of good people, you have already devalued him. You've already robbed him of the glory he is due when you put him in a list. Why? Because he doesn't belong on a list. He's not one among many. He's not in a category of good teachers. You can't put Jesus up there on a list with like, well, there's Muhammad, and there's there's the Buddha, and there's Confucius, and there's Jesus, and there's all these good teachers. No, 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 no. He's not on a list of all these good teachers. He doesn't want your compliments. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your life. He's not looking for compliments in the polls. He's looking for commitment of human souls. Well, you can imagine then the stage is set. So that's what people say. And then he brings it to a very personal level. And I'm going to have three application points for us today. And we're about to see the first one. Let me read this verse and then I'll show you the first of three. If you're, if you're a note taker, you're going to jot down three applications that have everything to do with you today. He brings it to a very personal level and he says, okay, that's who people say that I am. Okay, you've been with me now for 16 chapters. So, well, some of you have been with me since chapter four. <laughs> okay, what about y'all? What about you guys? He said to them, but who do you all say? It's plural. Who do y'all say that I am? Very personal. This is the question of the gospel of Matthew. You might even say this is the question of the whole Bible. Guys, who, wh- what do you do about Jesus? What do you say about Jesus? You, you, you can try to dodge this. You can try to, and people try to dodge this in lots of different ways. And I'm telling you, that is the question before the disciples. That is the drum roll, please. That is the, it's a million dollar question. Oh, okay, guys, you've been with me. You've seen what I've done. Now, what do you say? Who am I? And that is still right now, if I can bring this message, just if, if it were just, if it were just you and me and we were having coffee and we were right across the table, this is the question I would want to ask just you and me. I would want to say, have you personally dealt with that question? Who do you say Jesus is? That's the first application point. Have you faced the ultimate question? What do you do with Jesus? Who is he? What do you make of him? Was he just a good teacher? Was he just on the world stage as as one among many good teachers? Or as we just sang, holy, holy, holy. Do you know what that means, God in three persons? That is good doctrine. That's good theology. There is one God. In three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. You say, that's a mystery, how can that be? That's right, it's called the Trinity. And Jesus, we believe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we believe Jesus, God the Son. And God, in human flesh, came and was born in a manger in Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death on the cross, and on the third day, was raised from the dead. Now, have you faced that question, or do you try to dodge that? You know, a lot of people try to dodge that question, and they dodge it by talking about the followers of Jesus. It's very easy to do, but it's a cop-out. What do I mean by that? Right now, on the world stage, very few people are asking, did a dead Nazarene Jew named Jesus get up and walk out of a grave? That's not what people are talking about. On the news, what they talk about is people who believe that uh, let's call them evangelical Christians or Bible-believing Christians or the Southern Baptist denomination. People want to talk about it. And on the, oh, and every time there's a, an election cycle, every time you're going to hear about evangelicals and, and denominations and Protestant Christians or whatever it is. And, and, and what does the news care about? They care about well, how do evangelicals vote and what political leanings and, and which party tries to curry favor with all these things. I, I always want to say, like, guys, whoa, 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 whoa. If a dead Nazarene Jew 2,000 years ago got up and walked out of a grave, y'all have missed the headline. Like, if those dead lungs took a breath, if that dead heart, after it was dead, crucified, dead as a doornail, dead, and that heart suddenly started beating, and a physical resurrection came out of the grave, the rest is rock and roll. Like, You have missed the headline of the. The same thing happens on a personal level. I know people. They will dodge this question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is He the crucified Lord of Glory? Because if He is, that changes everything. And if He didn't, I'm out. So I've staked my life, my eternity. This Jesus, this is the one you're going to stand is before as He's going to be your judge. Like your eternal destiny is based on this question. And you want to talk about politics? You want to talk about evangelicals and how they vote? That's not the headline. On a personal level, this hits home. I know people who've dodged this question and they refuse to deal with the Jesus question because, uh, well, here, let me explain it like this. I'll never forget, I got a call from an elderly lady and she was pleading with me. Pastor, will you please, please, so many pastors have tried, will you please come talk to my husband? He doesn't want anything to do with church. He doesn't want anything to do with God. Please, will you just be one more person just just try, just please, come, talk, of course, I go out there, I talk to him, and I, I basically try to hit him with this same question, like, what, what do you believe about Jesus? Who, who is this person Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Kind of of line of thinking, And you know what he proceeded to tell me? He told me about how he 'd been wrong, He named every church that had wronged him, every Christian that had done him wrong. Every person who called themselves a child of God, who was filled with hypocrisy and sin and all that stuff, and he, just, and he just unloaded. Like, that answered the question. And I wanted to say, I am so sorry on behalf of everybody who's ever called themselves a follower of Jesus who has hurt you. But that's not what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you about other people. I'm not, you're not going to stand before them as judge. They're not going to be your judge. You're not, they're not going to have anything to do with it. I'm asking you, what do you do with Jesus? And for him, it was like, well, I'm, you know, Oh, these people do this and they do that. Now, I'm like, that's a distraction. Who do you say that I am? So I, just, I don't want anybody to escape here today without wrestling with this question. I don't want you to be able to escape this question. I want you to sit under this question and really feel the weight of it. Have you faced the ultimate question? What do you do with Jesus? Is all this made up? Is, this, is he legend? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he the Lord demanding of all your worship? I mean, look, let's be honest. I mean, you'll notice also Jesus, he he asks, who do people say that I am? But then he gets to, who do you say that I am? And not for nothing, I just want to point this out, but like Jesus is not so much concerned, like who does your wife say Jesus is this morning? He's not asking, who does your mama say Jesus is? He's not asking, who does grandma, who's faithfully praying for you, who does she think Jesus is? He's not asking about your kids. Because look, let's just be as real as real talk. Some of you in this room right now are here somewhat by coercion. (laughs) Nervous laughter, right? Side glances, yeah. Uh, You would never maybe admit it, but there's a sense in which you were uh, encouraged to be here, right? And by encouraged, I mean dragged, thrown in the back of the minivan. Yeah, okay, (laughs) I remember hearing an old preacher. He's like, when I was a kid, I had a drug problem. We were like, what? He's like, yep, every Sunday I was drugged to church, and I didn't want to come. I was like, all right, all right. But you see, it's, I mean, right? There's a sense in which. Now, now here, when I watch this. Some of you are under a different kind of coercion, and over time, you'll say, well, all this Jesus stuff, it's not really for me, but I come here because y'all got so much good stuff going on for kids. You just can't beat what's going on for children. And your students, and I see the students, and I, I, want my, I want my teenager to have that peer group and to find that encouragement, so I'm here for them. What about, what about you? Well, nah, you know, I'm not really, listen, or I'm here because mama came here, or I'm here because, whoa, whoa, whoa. Have you faced this question? This is, who do you say that I am? This is not, Jesus is not dealing here at this point with, with see, if you do that long enough, if you say, well, I'm just here for my teens, or I'm just here for my kids, or I'm here because of all these other reasons, eventually you come to find out, like, he's been dealing with you. So I don't want to belabor the point. I guess I I, I just want to make the case that there is a personal question here. And Jesus asked it of these, of these disciples, okay, I've heard about what everybody else says I am. Now, okay, he looks at him. You can almost feel the tension building. All right, guys, you, some of you have been with me since chapter four. What do you say, right? I mean, you, you, you've seen me. You, what's the verdict? You saw me cast out demons. You saw me heal Peter. I healed a family member of yours, your mother-in-law. You saw me cleanse the lepers. Remember when those four friends ripped a hole in the roof and they lowered that guy down the roof? Remember that? Remember that was in Matthew. I, I healed the guy. Remember, I forgave him. Of sins, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Then I told him, "Take up your mat and walk." Remember, then the guy in the synagogue with the withered hand. I healed him. I've been loved by the crowd, hated by the Pharisees. You've heard the parables. I calmed the storm with just a word. I heard that. I healed that garrison demoniac. Remember the 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 spirits that went into the pigs and they went careening off that cliff. Remember that. And then I I I, I healed that woman with the issue of blood for twelve years. Then I raised Jairus' daughter. She had been dead for uh, all, I mean dead pronounced dead and I go in and I heal that girl and raise her from the dead you saw me feed 5,000 you saw me walk on the water Uh, the the, the mute could speak the the blind could see you saw what I did with that Canaanite woman's demon possessed daughter then I healed the 4,000 the the, the people have been healed so seriously fellows who am I? what's it going to be? they look around I imagine, you know, Simon Peter ended up a lot of times being the spokesman for the crowd. So I imagine they look around, they give Simon Peter the nod. Okay. And Simon Peter says from the bottom of his heart, verse 16, he nails it. Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah. If you prefer Greek, you are the Christ. Same thing. The son of the living God. You just imagine Jesus like, Yes. <laughs> yes, that's it. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. He made the ultimate confession. You are the King. You are the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's you. So here's my second application. The first is have you faced that question? What do you do with Jesus? The second is the natural follow up. Have you made the good confession? Is he your Lord? Have you decided that Jesus is king? What about you? Preachers might uh, say, you know, have you been saved? Have you been born again? Uh, We're saying the same thing. Yeah. Have you faced that ultimate question and then made the ultimate confession? The disciples have seen enough of Jesus' power and love to to know exactly who he is. What about you? That, and that's, they've seen him do all these things. That's what I wanted to tell that old man. I had no success with him that day, but I wanted to say, you've seen the goodness of God in your life. Now, what do you say about Jesus? He wanted to tell me about all these other people. I said, you're focused on all these other people. What about Jesus? Have you made him your Lord? So let me ask you, point blank, do, do you need to embrace him as your king this morning? Is there someone in this room? Maybe you've been coming for a while. Maybe you've been, you've been hearing, you've been hearing the good news of the gospel. Is it today the day to make a public profession of faith? Make the ultimate confession. Jesus is Lord. He's your Messiah. He is your King, the Son of the living God. I just want to point out two things about where this, uh, confession, where this confession happens. The where and the when. The where tells us about kind of the nature of the confession, that it was public. And the when tells us that it was a faith-based confession. Uh, so, so where, Bible trivia time. It's okay. Um, it's not cheating if you go back and look. Uh, you can go back and look, but without looking, does anybody remember the city that they're in when this confession is made? Does anybody remember? It's uh, it's in verse thirteen. If you want to cheat, but somebody somebody said it. That's exactly right. Yeah, somebody said Caesarea Philippi. Yeah, so Caesarea Philippi. So we're in the Roman I- I- Empire, and when it was divided up, uh, this guy Herod got, or this guy Philip, uh, Herod gave it to his son. This guy Philip gets this city, and so he he's so proud of his city that he names his city. Philippi. The thing is, when you're in Rome and you're kind of in middle management in the Roman Empire, uh, it really helps you uh, to uh, flatter the people above you. And the person above you, the one person you wanted to keep happy was the, uh, 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 the leader of the entire Roman Empire, right? Who's that? You guys, Caesar, right? You guys know Caesar. He invented salad. At the top is Caesar. So what you do is you name your city Philippi, but then, and it pays to do things like this, as a tip of the hat, you name it Caesar's Philippi, or as we would call it, Caesarea Philippi. And then you don't stop there. There was a huge, can you imagine, glistening, gleaming marble monument to who? To Caesar why? Because in the Roman Empire, Caesar is your king. If you have a Messiah, it's going to be Caesar. Caesar is seen not just as an anointed one by the divinity, by the, by the gods and goddesses in, in the Roman mythology, but that, that Caesar was, in a way, he was a form of God, right? So there was this idol worship, and the national religion, the state religion, would have been to Caesar. So there's Caesar's gleaming white monument. I imagine Jesus asking this question, Who? Do people say that I am, and then who do you say that I am with this white monument in the background? But there's more. If you do a little uh, history research, S- Caesarea Philippi was a much more ancient city. Caesarea Philippi was its fairly new name, its old name. Nobody called it Caesarea Philippi. All the, Everybody that grew up there, they knew it by a whole different name. Everybody called it by its original Greek name, Panaeus. Panaeus? Why? It's named after the Greek god Pan, you remember Pan from your mythology class, right? So it's like half goat creature and half human. The, the, god, the idea, the, the idea that, uh, that Pan, we get, the, we get pantheism. He's like a god of nature and the idea that God is in all of nature. The legend was that the Greek god Pan was born in this city. Under a little grotto with this little river flowing out of it, that's where Pan, it's the birthplace of Pan. So you've got all these idols and all these temples everywhere devoted to all these different aspects of nature. The idea that Pan, you know, God is in nature. So literally all, the, all is God, pantheism. So in, I'm making a point here. In, in, the, in the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, you've got this monument to Caesar right in front of the state religion to Caesar and then surrounded by all the world religions of Pan, right? You've got all these different gods everywhere He couldn't be more on the world stage. Jesus is saying in front of everybody, in front of the state religion of Caesar, in front of all the different religions of the world, who am I? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're it. Why is that so important? Notice how public that confession is. Jesus doesn't ask him. He doesn't say, hidden away in a cave in Capernaum, in a secret cultic ceremony, Jesus asked this question. No, he asked him right there on the world stage. Right there with, with, with Caesar's temple glittering and all this idol worship to Pan. Right, whoops, right there in the middle of all that is what? Who am I? Why do I say that? To me, there's something really special about how we do baptism, and there's a, there's a doctrinal reason. You notice we show these baptisms, they happen, they're a public event. Why? Because when people say, Jesus is Lord, they're professing it. That's why even today, you saw Pastor BJ baptized. He said, are you here to tell the world that you are forever for King Jesus? This is not a hidden away confession, like we're in some secret cult somewhere. This is in front of, think about, it, as much as culture in this country changes, and all the the, the things that are devoted, it seems, to our version of Caesar and the world religion, there's still a moment to publicly profess Jesus is Lord. I think the where here is very significant. The other is the when. Listen, Matthew has 28 chapters, y'all. We're just in 16. Some of you who've been part of the Matthew series since the beginning are like, I know, we're just in 16. <laughs> we'll get there. But it's 28 chapters long. What's my point? Jerusalem hadn't happened yet. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus hasn't happened yet. In fact, when Mark tells this story, it says, while they were on the way, I love that, on the way. Listen, Peter's confession, Peter's good confession happens on the way. It doesn't happen at the, end of his, at the end of the story, looking back. Oh, well now, now I see everything. No, no, no. That, what do they say? Hindsight is 20-20. It's easy to look back and go, well, if I had known that, well, if I had known that. No, no, no. Peter has to make the decision about who Jesus is now in the middle of his story. Listen, we all have to live in the middle of our story. We don't get to see the end. So if, if if you were to say, well, Tom, I would profess Jesus as Lord, but I don't know, I'm going to hold off. Why? Well, I'm going to wait until I see Him. I'm going to wait until you know you guys preach that Jesus is going to return one day. I'm going to wait till He returns. Then, I, whoa, whoa, whoa! Listen, if you wait to bow the knee to Jesus as your King and to confess that He is Lord, if you wait until He returns, first of all, you will bow the knee. The Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will bow the knee. But if you wait until that moment, you will have waited eternally too late. The time to make this good confession is now. You say, but I'm in the middle of my story. I I haven't yet seen him. I haven't laid. That's right. By faith, make this good confession. Well... If you say, but I don't know how I can do that. I don't, I don't know how I can make this good confession. Jesus offers some hope here. He tells him exactly where this confession comes from. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah is Hebrew for son of John or son of Jonah. We don't know. Uh, in John's gospel, he gets called uh, son of John or son of Jonah. It can be translated either way. But just means Simon, son of John for flesh and blood. In other words, you called me the son of God. I'm telling you, you have a human father. I didn't have a human father. Obviously, Jesus didn't have a human father. He's saying, but you did. But here's what I know. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What's he saying? Only God can reveal God. And God has revealed it to Simon Peter. It takes revelation from above to see this Jesus, this despised working man, dismissed as crazy by his family, condemned as a criminal by his enemies, he's the very son of God and he's Messiah. It takes an act of grace to receive that. And the principle of grace is still true today. Nobody can pierce through to Jesus' identity by his own cleverness. It's got to be given by God himself. In other words, here's what I know about you. If you're here and you have made that good confession, if you're here and you're saved, here's what I know about you. You didn't think that up on your own. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. In other words, it's God. It's God who does the saving. It's God. And he's telling you, Peter, you didn't come up with this on your own. God has given you this. And I've got something to tell you. And I tell you, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Your version may say gates of Hades or a place of death shall not prevail against it. Jesus is here using a, a play on the word Peter. Remember, Peter is the nickname that Jesus gave him. Peter means rock. So just like God chose Abram and gave him the name Abraham, father of many nations, here he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, with that kind of confession of faith, your confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, with that kind of confession, with that kind of faith, that's a rock I can build my church on right there. And sure enough, he does. And who preaches the gospel at Pentecost? Who's the first one to preach that rock-solid good news to the world? It's Peter. And sure enough, that kind of confession of faith has been the rock. And the gates of hell has not prevailed against his church. I love that. Uh, uh, You know, you think about a church that's wholly dependent on God. Let me ask you, why the gates of hell would not prevail against it? You would think he might say, like, the armies of the demons or something, but he says gates of hell. That always strikes me that like the gates, I guess, I always think of as a defensive position and you'd put the strongest artillery and soldiers there at the gates. And maybe that's what Jesus is saying, that the very strongest that hell has to offer may come against the church. Uh, The the darkness and all the the wickedness that, that, that Satan can throw at the church, all the loathsome and smoldering pride and hate from the bowels of hell could attack the kingdom of heaven, the body of Christ, the church, and Jesus says, uh, let them bring it on. They will not prevail against the church. It could be that the gates, you know, I I thought about that. Maybe the the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven, if you think of them both having gates, maybe the reason the gates of hell will not prevail is because (laughs) the gates of hell are pressed up against the gates of heaven because there's no neutral zone in this conflict. There's no demilitarized zone. Maybe it's gate-to-gate conflict. Doesn't Jesus say, Anyone who's not for me, is it against me? I mean, there's a sense that there's no neutral zone. It's either or. And so maybe that's what it means. Either way, uh, I, I, I know this verse to be true. I know this verse to be personally true. I can testify. Some of you can too. Think about for all the church has been through in all her history. And think about all that has been war that has been waged against God's people. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. I don't have anything dramatic like uh, martyrdom or anything in my own uh, personal testimony, but I do remember uh, it was my, my second week as a pastor. I was called to this church in New York in September of 2002. The first week did not go well, the second week was even worse. And I remember standing, being screamed at, yelled at by the landlord that we were renting the church from. And I, I, I didn't understand a lot of what he was saying. He used words, I I hadn't heard a lot of those words. And I'm standing there in a flooded basement as this guy's screaming, threatening, he's gonna kick us all out and you're never gonna have a church building again. And as I'm standing there, and I'm standing there because I'm cleaning up and I'm standing knee deep in, to this day, what I hope was water And I remember standing there in this thing, in in, in this flooded situation, this guy's screaming at me, as this is happening, I'm getting calls and more tragedy is breaking apart. And I'll spare you all the details, but I remember all that thinking, what am I going to do? And then I realized, like, I'm supposed to preach a sermon. And after my first week, I was like, I got to do this every week? Like, oh man, like every Sunday. Um, I had like five sermons and I thought I could just maybe use those. Um... And so that, that Sunday, and that Sunday my text was Matthew 16, 18. And I just stood up there, and I told the people, the gates of hell won't prevail against this church. That water receded a long time ago, but that church is still there. That body of believers is still doing just fine. Why? His promise is true. The gates of hell can't prevail. Why? The, the gates of hell are the gates of death. And on Easter Sunday morning, the gates of death, we learned one thing. That the gates of death in Hades cannot hold Jesus back from resurrection power and can't hold his people back, the church. So, what can some of you are really up against a difficult season in life? You're part of God's people. What, if God is for us, who can be against us. That's what he tells Peter. And then he gives him a really curious thing. And he says, uh, verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what he says to Peter, he says to all the disciples, just a couple chapters from now, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, loosed in heaven. This is an interesting verse. Bound and loose are how the ancient rabbis talked about their interpretation of the Torah. But what he's saying is, I've given you guys the real interpretation of the Bible, that it points to me, okay? So what you're going to do is you're going to go share this interpretation of the Old Testament with the world. You are going to show everybody, hey, you know the Old Testament scriptures you've been reading, yeah? Let me do some binding and loosing. That's how the, the rabbis would talk about their interpretation of the Old Testament. Let me do some binding and loosing. This Old Testament, it points to Jesus. And that, if you go back and look at the New Testament, that's how the apostles always preached. It'd be something like that. Hey, everything you know about the Old Testament, especially when they were preaching to Jews, they would say, everything you know about the Old Testament, it points to Jesus, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, right? Now repent and be saved. So in other words, he was giving them the good news of the gospel. And that's still true today. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize you still are part of that, holding those keys? Why? Because Satan wants to lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. He wants to keep them from hearing the gospel. Satan wants to add religious rules and rituals and to the point where God just seems so far away. With your faithful witness this week, maybe even, on the, maybe even at a restaurant this afternoon, what, with your faithful witness, with the way you live your life submitted to Jesus Christ, you can give the gospel, and you know what you will do? You will unlock the message of Jesus Christ for someone to be able to get to God. You will unlock for them some mysteries. A light will go off. You have that power because you know the gospel. You, in a sense, you, you now have keys to the kingdom. You can make things clear that were not clear before by your faithful witness, by your sharing of the gospel. Well, you would think after a passage like that, guys, you've got the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to send you out. You're going to share the gospel. And by the way, they, they did. That, I mean, you read the book of Acts. So you would think you would say, so in light of all that, Go tell everybody, which makes the next verse so interesting. Then he strictly charged them so unexpected. He charged the disciples, Tell no one that he was the Christ. What? Yeah. Don't tell anybody. Why? Why would he do that? He he's gonna tell him at the end, he's gonna tell them the opposite. He's gonna say, Tell everybody that I'm the Messiah. Go make disciples of all nations. But at this point in Matthew 16, he says, Okay, okay, you're right, you're right. I am the Messiah, I am the Son of the Living God. Now, Totally keep that to yourself for now. Why? He's saying because you guys, you have a completely misunderstood definition of what it means to be Messiah. So even though you're right, your understanding of what it means to be be Messiah is actually going to do more harm than good right now if you go out and spread the news the way you understand it. It's like you know just enough to be dangerous. I remember in uh, (laughs) I took this class in college called Introduction to Psychology. And uh, our professor was really wise in the way in in what he said. At one point, he uh, he looked at the whole class. We had gone through this thing, an introduction to the DSM. I guess when I was there, DSM four. It's like a basically a a diagnostic tool for all these psychoses and neuroses and all these different things. And he was like, "Hey, I've been teaching a long time. I'm just going to tell you right now. Please, y'all, please, please do not do what every single intro to psych." student has done for the history of all time. I'm like, why? Because I know you're going to do it. Please do not leave this class and begin immediately diagnosing all of your friends and this whole campus. Finally, yes, you're schizophrenic. Hey, and you. He's like, "Uh, you all know just enough to be dangerous and you are not yet qualified to begin diagnosing all your friends. It's like, I've always wondered. Now I know you're crazy. So he's like, you can't do that. So because you know just enough to be dangerous. It takes years of study before you can give a proper diagnosis. That's what he's telling the disciples. He's like, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. When you hear Messiah, I know what that means to you. Messiah is come to be a military hero. He's gonna be mighty and he's gonna set everything to rights. Now, that's why it's complicated. There's a sense in which like one day Jesus, yes, he will come and set the world to rights. When that trumpet sounds and that sky rips open and he returns, But first, he's coming as a suffering lamb slain for the sins of the world. Well, they want to skip that step and get straight to the military mighty King Messiah. And so when they hear that, they're like, yo, Jesus is going to be rich. Jesus is going to be famous, and we're going to be rich and famous with him. And they're starting to do the math. He, instead of Governor Pilate, he's going to be Governor Jesus. And Philip thinks, and I'm going to be Lieutenant Governor right there with him. And James and John are like, no, we're going to be Lieutenant Governor, right? And one of them thinks, no, he's, he's not going to be like Pilate. He's going to be like Caesar, and we're going to be like Vice Caesars. Whoa. Andrew thinks, I'm going to be Secretary of Defense. And Thomas is like, I'm going to be Secretary of Labor. And Judas is like, Secretary of Treasury. Right, right. You understand? They're all, they're all, but they're all doing the math here. They're like, we're going to be rich, we're going to be powerful, we're going to be, we're going to be famous. And Rome, who's been oppressing us, all that Roman oppression is going to be thrown off, and we all, oh, it's going to be awesome. So here's what's going to happen. Jesus has to go to Jerusalem because that's where you're going to be famous. That's where Messiah is going to land. So we got, okay, so we got to go to Jerusalem, and then you're going to be celebrated and beloved by, let's see, we need the elders, who else? We need the chief priests, ooh, and we need the scribes. Yeah, if we can get them on board and beloved by them, and then you'll be enthroned as king and everyone will live happily ever after. Jesus knows that's what they're thinking, so he's like, ah, let me correct you. Let me redefine what it means to be Messiah. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and, and they're like, yeah, must go to Jerusalem. But here's where he changes it, and suffer many things. What? From who? From the elders and chief priests and scribes. What? No, they're the ones that are supposed to love you and take you in. What? And be killed. No, no, Jesus. How could you be killed? You're suppo- you're mis- we've seen you raise people from the dead. How could you be killed? And on the third day be raised. What do you mean you be raised? You do the raising. What? They they, they don't understand. They've completely forgotten about massive chunks of the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, which says it will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He would die for the people. They're ignoring all that. And they're like, what? No, no. So Peter feels like he has no choice. I love verse twenty-three; It's so precious. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> now, uh, anytime you're rebuking Jesus, you're not in a good space. And you have to love Peter took him aside. I love this. Like, Jesus, a word. Now, Jesus I wanted to have this difficult talk. I'm calling this a, a come to Jesus. Well, it's, but you're Jesus. It's come to Peter. You're having a come to Peter. And I didn't want to do this in front of everyone, Jesus, because I didn't want to embarrass you in front of all your friends. Jesus, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Don't talk like that. Don't, no more of that suffering and going to be killed. None of that, Jesus. You are really hurting morale. Jesus, we love the miracles. We feel like you're really powerful. You just don't know your Bible, Jesus. It's funny cuz he wrote it. Yeah. Right, right. It's like if you Jesus, Jesus, listen. We we all agree. You have a lot of potential. And we see big things in your future. But this whole you're going to have to die and suffer You have got to stop talking like that. You are God's anointed king. What does Jesus say? Jesus thinks, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. See, Jesus, you can have all the kingdoms without the struggle. You can have the crown without the cross. He says, I've heard this before. I heard this 12 chapters ago. I heard this back in Matthew 4, and it was the enemy who said this. And it was... Satan who tempted me with this very same thing and I'm not going to stand here and let the words that came out of my enemy now those same words I'm not going to let them come out of the lips of my friend and so what does he do? He rebukes Peter he turned and said to Peter get behind me Satan you're a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man He's saying, you've been so conditioned by the world. I love you, Peter, but I've heard those same words before. And those are words, those are satanic words. Those aren't anything like the words that you just uttered, that I'm the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that leads to the final application for us. Have you faced the ultimate question? Have you made the ultimate confession? And then, like Peter had to go through, have you undergone the ultimate correction? What's the ultimate correction? We think life is all about us. We think think Jesus can just be sort of an add-on to a, Live the American dream, and, and Peter just thought Jesus could just be sort of sort of tacked onto their life. He could become a king with no suffering, and they could advance in power, and fame, and in wealth. That it's all about them, and Jesus has to give them the under the ultimate correction. Now, what about you? Those of you who've been saved, have you allowed him to correct you? He's going to say some crazy things. He's going to say, uh, you know, if you want to keep your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you'll find it. Seems like in his kingdom, it's an upside down kingdom. First or last. Our last verse is uh, verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, look, he's correcting their understanding. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This correcting may take many forms. Uh, The world says, uh, go get it all. You may have to renounce your appetite for wealth. The world says, actualize above all else. Be true to yourself. The world says says all that Jesus says, renounce pride and self-righteousness. To follow him, the complacent will have to give up comfort. That is a verse that has launched people out of Coleman, Alabama, around the world on the mission field. And maybe God is still calling missionaries and ministers today. And maybe it's a verse like this. That verse may keep you in Coleman, Alabama when it would be easier to go. The faint-hearted and cowardly will have to renounce a craving for security and safety. The violent and the angry will have to renounce their desire for revenge. On and on it goes. But the cross means identifying with the one who was mocked, shamed, and scorned. And Brandon's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. But I wanna ask you, for those of you who are believers, have you begun the process of that sanctification, that work of him correcting you, correcting your understanding of what it means to be a believer? Have you heard the, the word that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? It's not an easy word. It's not easy to hear, but in the joy of following Jesus, you know, He doesn't say, "Take, take up your, cr- deny Himself, take up His cross, and good luck." He says, "Deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow Me." This is a a, a matter of embracing Jesus. So if you if you've never faced this question, face it today. And I'm going to pray that if you're under conviction, you know that's what. We might call it, if you're under conviction, if you know you need to deal with this Jesus issue, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray you don't get any rest until you deal with it today. And I pray that you'll deal with it by making that good confession, making him the Lord of your life, receiving him as Lord and Savior. You could do that today. He died on the cross for you. And for those of you who are believers, that we would allow him to correct us and reshape us. You know, the word that gets me is that word, uh, in verse 21, that word Must always gets me (laughs) he began to say look he must go to Jerusalem do you ever think about why what's baked into that must goes all the way back to Garden of Eden goes all the way back to you and me when humans said no God we don't want you as king we want to be our own king there was a, a fracture in the way the universe works perfect relationship with God and man it was broken open and there was one way to get it right that sinless, spotless Lamb of God who did nothing wrong. That, that, that spotless Lamb. It's not the Lamb's fault. It's the people's fault. The Lamb did nothing wrong. Can you imagine watching, growing up in the Old Testament, watching the sacrifice? Imagine being a little kid, watching that fluffy, white, unblemished Lamb go to the altar and be killed? You would say, that, that's not right. That's, but why? Why? And Jesus knew He was to be that forever, unblemished, spotless Lamb of God. And that he must be lost for you to be saved. He must die on the cross. He must be betrayed. He must be the elders, chief priests, and scribes have all their enmity. Why? So that you could be forever saved. He did that for us and our salvation. That's what it meant for him to be Messiah. And that's what he offers today. He loves you. And he offers you this. The gates of hell will not prevail against his people. Won't you come to him? Won't you receive him today? If you've not made that good confession, consider today, who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Oh God, grant us grace right now. I pray for anyone who has not yet made that ultimate confession. That they've never confess you as lord of their life believed in their heart that you were raised from the dead oh god that today would be that day lord for anyone who has maybe never really chosen to wrestle with the really important things in life that they would wrestle today they would stare this question down and not look away and not be distracted and for those who are believers oh god continue to correct our understanding of what it means to be your follower. Grant us more and more joy as we see in you, the spotless Lamb of God, who went to the cross for us and our salvation. Grant that we might embrace you more and more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? The invitation is so clear. If you need to make the good confession...